Welcome to The Hub Dialogues, a podcast that celebrates big thinkers and bold ideas about a better future for all of us. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the executive director of The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. Our goal at The Hub is to escape the opinion bubbles of conventional conversation and prod our popular discourse back to the issues and ideas that can shape our collective future. On The Hub Dialogues, you'll hear Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, in conversation with some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers about the issues and ideas they're passionate about and that they think we should spend more time focusing on. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granosky gluskin Charitable Foundation. Enjoy this Hub Dialogue. Welcome to Hub Dialogues. I'm your host, Sean Spear, Editor-at-Large at The Hub. I'm honored to be joined today by Damon Linker, a well-known American columnist, pundit, and public intellectual who's been a columnist for The Week, editor of First Things magazine, and author of the highly regarded books, Theocons and the Religious Test. Today, he's responsible for the must-read Substack newsletter, Eyes on the Right, is a senior fellow at the Niskanen Center, and a regular guest on the Bulwark's Beg to Differ podcast. I'm grateful to speak with him about his own intellectual and political evolution, ongoing upheaval within American conservatism, and why he thinks it's important to keep eyes on the right. Damon, thanks for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Well, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Let's start with a bit of biography, if that's okay. Your fascinating career as a columnist, pundit, and public intellectual has occurred against the backdrop of your own intellectual and political evolution. You were a third-generation Straussian scholar and editor of the Catholic magazine First Things. You now describe yourself as a, quote, conflicted moderate and a, quote, liberal, rightly understood, who's an opponent of the excesses of left-wing radicalism, um, but a bigger opponent to the Trumpian shift in the world of American conservatism. Is your story a version of the Ronald Reagan line about how, quote, he didn't leave the Democratic Party, the Democratic Party left him? Or did your own thinking evolve beyond the conservatism of your past before Trump came on the scene? Uh, if so, what changed for you? Well, thanks for queuing that up. It's a complicated story, and uh, I'm now old enough at age 53 that there's a fair amount of a story there. Uh, <laughs> so I'll try not to take too long in it. Um, I was raised to be sort of, um, I don't know, center left, I guess, as I was growing up. I'm Jewish, and so there was, uh, you know, a kind of general suspicion of kind of the far right and that it's dangerous. And so one should always be sort of secular liberal uh, and tolerant in the way that that gets defined by secular American Jews, especially. So that was kind of my starting point. But as I, I went through college, I encountered ideas that might be described as Straussian or kind of related to Leo Strauss, especially through Alan Bloom's big best-selling book, The Closing of the American Mind. And through that, I ended up studying with those folks in graduate school. And the, I was lucky enough to be studying with uh, students of Leo Strauss who were not particularly political, actually. They, they didn't talk about politics much. 
This was during the 90s. Bill Clinton's in the White House. I, I don't remember a professor ever mentioning Bill Clinton. Mm. It just politics never came up. We were reading Plato, Aristotle, Machiavelli, Rousseau, Nietzsche. Like we, we were reading old books and debating the philosophical ideas within them, not talking about what was going on in Washington. But as so happens, so often, I, when I finished my PhD, I needed to find a job. And I, I taught for a couple of years in a visiting position at Brigham Young University out in Utah. Um, and then I had kind of no prospects. And I could have stuck on at BYU for another year, gone on the market again. But I just felt like, you know, I'm a good writer. I don't want to have to, you know, pick up and move anywhere in the world where there's a job for a year and do that indefinitely. So I, I did the really smart thing and decided I'm not going to be a professor. I'm going to be a journalist because that's a real <laughs> growth prospect. Um, so and at that point, because of my Straussian background, all my contacts were basically neoconservative intellectuals. So for a year or so, I just wrote like crazy for for a whole series of magazines and newspapers, you know, National Review, The Wall Street Journal, Policy Review, which doesn't exist anymore, The Weekly Standard, which doesn't exist anymore, and, and a bunch of others, Commentary Magazine, a bunch. And 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 through that, got a job working as a speechwriter for Rudy Giuliani, where my boss was one Michael Anton, who I don't know if your listeners are aware of, but he's a very prominent uh, kind of hard right pro-Trump uh, guy affiliated with the Claremont Institute out in California. Um, and but then within about six months, I got a job as an editor of First Thing. So even though I wasn't that political by this point in my work life post PhD, I I look like a conservative. I'm working for conservative magazines, and, and these are now this is now my tribe. The only problem is, um, I you know I I guess I I have a, a kind of inveterate skepticism about myself, and so. I was I was going along with the program pretty well until the start of the ramp up to the Iraq war. And I started to say, you know, this doesn't sound too smart. I don't think we should do this. And that led to a lot of tension within the first things, uh, you know, on the staff uh, because I was opposing this. And and then, you know, as the, the war broke out and then uh, also the, George Bush, as he was preparing to run for reelection in 2004, came out very strongly against gay marriage. And I was kind of ambivalent about that. I was like, well, how about what civil unions would be OK? Could we at least defend that? And the magazine wouldn't really do that either. So, you know, basically things just snowballed and I eventually left in a huff quit the magazine, got a, a a big book deal to write a book about, well, the magazine and its influence on the Bush administration and the other Catholic intellectuals in its circle. So that was a real bridge-burning exercise. And from that point, I kind of shifted back to where I started on the center-left. And I've sort of been there ever since. But my center-left is kind of quirky and idiosyncratic. I'm sort of the reverse of a lot of American center-left people. Like, a lot of, a lot of the center-left is defined in the U.S. as being 
sort of libertarian-ish on economics, so low taxes, cut regulations, pro-business and growth, and then very, very liberal on social issues, whereas I'm the inverse of that. I'm a little more conservative on social issues, and I'm in favor of more regulation, universal health care, those kinds of things that are associated with kind of I don't know, European Christian democracy, something like that. So, and then on foreign policy, I'm really off the grid because I was, as a kid and as a young man, I was sort of a Reaganite Cold Warrior, which was originally a kind of liberal Cold Warrior, if you go back to the 50s and 60s. But yet I thought that the way the Bush administration was waging the war on terror was was not wise. As I told you a minute ago, I opposed the Iraq war. I, I supported the Afghanistan war, but not staying there for 19 years. I didn't support getting more involved in Syria during the Syrian civil war. I didn't support Obama going into Libya. So in general, the, the war on terror, I just dissented from. So you put those three things together, <laughs> kind of offsides on every dimension. And that's kind of the sensibility from which I write my my Substack newsletter now in my my uh, attempt to analyze and understand and criticize the the Trumpian right. There, there's so much there, Damon, and I would just encourage listeners to to check out the Substack where you expand on some of those different experiences and perspectives, including, of course, a two part series on your relationship with Michael Anton, which I which I strongly recommend. As you say, you were already moving away from the right well before the, the 2016 election. But it's fair to say that Donald Trump's takeover of the Republican Party served to reinforce your trajectory. You wrote in your final column for the week, where I should just say, incidentally, you published more than 1,300 columns over eight and a half years, including during the Trump presidency, that the experience made you feel, quote, unmoored, adrift in a churning storm-tossed sea, expending most of my mental energy on rendering elemental judgments about whether the topic I had chosen to write about on any given day was based in fact or conspiratorial fiction spun out by our gaslighter in chief or the spirited army of antagonists arrayed against him, unquote. Do you want to talk a bit about the challenge of writing about ideas, policy and politics during the Trump presidency? Sure. Um, I mean, there are kind of two things going on there. I mean, on the one level around the world, we've seen the rise of a kind of populist harder right. I mean, one way of looking at this, if you use sort of American uh, terminology or nomenclature, is that you have or you had all the way up till Trump, a kind of base assumption that both Republicans on the right and Democrats on the left were different variations of liberals in the classical sense. So, you know, the main consideration is freedom, and it's a, really a clash over whose freedom and how much freedom in different spheres. So, so, you know, Democrats have their own vision of freedom and also equality as ideals, but Republicans believe in in a kind of base equality of, of American citizens vis-a-vis uh, -vis the state and the government, that they this the government is there through our consent. We can withdraw that consent if, if it transgresses 
those bounds, the bounds set by protecting rights. And then the Republican Party tends to defend rights in terms of, of uh, you know, economic liberty, property kind of autonomy, whereas Democrats have a little different definition of autonomy, but they're related and they overlap. The thing that happened with Trump is that, and then also with a lot of the other populists around the world, you know, from Bolsonaro uh, in Brazil to uh, Orban in Hungary and many other places, is is a harder right, a kind of anti-liberal right that actually emphasizes things like an almost autarkic understanding of citizenship as rooted in place and people and blood, and so very strongly opposed to outside immigration, especially if the immigrants are not kind of part of one dimension of this tribalism. So like, especially in Hungary, for instance, it's not so much immigration as such, but immigration from the Muslim world is very feared because that will, that is something other than us. And also suspicion of trade for similar reasons, a kind of needing to have like an industrial policy to protect our polity against interests which are universalistic and care about profits wherever they are. And that can under mind the manufacturing base of our country and so forth. These are the issues that got put on the table. The interesting thing about my own position to this is that actually, I said earlier, like on economic issues, I tend to be a little bit more in favor of like, say, European social democracy or or uh, Christian democracy. And so I'm actually not opposed to some of that. I also tend toward being in favor of allowing lots of immigrants in. That's a big old American venerable tradition. But I don't see, unlike a lot of people on the left, I don't see a kind of moral offense in uh, of, of citizens getting together and deciding, you know, we deciding we've allowed too many people in, we need more time for assimilation, we want to kind of close the door a little bit or at least narrow it and, and have less immigration for a while. I might not even vote for that, but I don't think it's like a moral crime for uh, for people to have that view. Um, and so there are some ways in which if you just sort of looked at like what Trump stood for, not wanting to gut Social Security and Medicare uh, in our country, not trying, not doing what, say, someone like a Paul Ryan, who is a very more libertarian economic style uh, conservative in the U.S., who was the vice presidential running mate of Mitt Romney in 2012, like not like that, but but more in favor of kind of a sense of national community and needing to set borders up to protect the polity. That didn't strike me as horrible. And actually, there's some ways in which that was more appealing to me than what the Republican Party was standing for when all it cared about was like cutting rich people's taxes over. And that's the only thing it would talk about. So in that respect, you know, one would think maybe I would have found Trump a little appealing, even though I I prefer the Democratic Party version of those things. But in fact, the problem with Trump is that he personally... There was now there's the second layer. And this isn't always true in all the places where right wing populism has run for office or won office. He personally is corrupt. He doesn't really appear to believe anything other than advancing his own sense of his self-interests. 
He's willing, as we saw with the horrible events of January 6th, 2021, he's willing to shred the Constitution and overturn an election. If he could have figured out how to accomplish it, he absolutely would have. And, you know, he's also an inveterate liar. He lies constantly. And that's kind of the bit that you read from my final column at the week spoke to that, that he just pumps nonsense into the public space because, you know, when the president talks, people listen and Trump would just say complete and utter nonsense constantly. And that made it very difficult throughout the whole of his presidency to even get a a sense of what was true and what was false, because he would just assert things as true that were not. And then he so was was so good at if you know the term online being a troll. He was, you know, I, I, I quoted you quoted me calling him the gaslighter in chief. Another way to put it is a troll in chief. He kind of he just basically existed for those four years primarily to provoke liberals and progressives to have conniption fits, and so. They would then say outrageous things and jump on any story that they saw coming up that would make Trump look bad and run with it without doing due journalistic diligence to check the facts and see if it's true. And so what you had was this endless cycle of mutual provocation and attack that just made it very difficult sometimes to know what even was going on. And uh, that part of the Trump phenomenon is is truly distressing because when you're living in the midst of that, it's very difficult to, again, find your bearings. And if you can't even agree what the facts are, then it's very hard to kind of mount a more elaborate argument about why they're wrong or the, an interpretation of them is wrong because we, we don't even know if we're talking about reality or something that came out of Donald Trump's very large mouth in a cloud of BS. So it's <laughs> it's uh, it was a, it was really hard. Let me ask a, a somewhat related question. One of the striking things about Trump's rise in the 2016 Republican primaries is the evident disconnect between leading Republicans like Paul Ryan, who you mentioned, and the party's core voters. It, it seems clear in hindsight, for instance, that Republican voters were far less dogmatic about market economics and limited government than Ryan and others understood. What do you think explains the gap between Republican politicians and base voters that Trump was ultimately able to exploit? Well, I I do think that the Republican Party has a real donor problem. There is, I mean, as we've seen in our country, and there are versions of this happening around the democratic world, that there there is a growing gap in sensibility between kind of the mass of middle class, working class voters and the sensibility of what you could call, you know, progressive elites, kind of the people who run leading media companies and universities and other institutions and civil society. Their sensibility isn't the same. And one way in which the people who are running the the Republican Party up till 2016 actually were continuous with a lot of progressive elites is in a kind of presumption that, I don't know how to put it besides saying a kind of 
open borders universalism. And I don't mean strictly speaking, like we will now open borders and anyone can walk into our country and there's no restriction. But I do mean a, a sense that the the assumption that ideally we would have as much immigration as possible, as much free trade as possible, as many businesses closing factories here where the labor's too expensive and moving to cheap labor countries, usually in the developing world, because then our companies can make more profits there. And that's good because it rising tide raises all boats. This kind of outlook, um, and then on the on the left side of that, you then also add in a kind of distaste for national identification at all, that this is somehow morally questionable that people, you know, have more attachment to and love of their own country than someone in another country, that that's that that's morally questionable to feel that way. And what Trump recognized is that. Most people, most Republicans in general, and even some people who kind of straddle the Republican-Democratic divide and maybe didn't even vote very much because they they could intuitively sense that both parties sort of look down their noses at all of the, at these kind of feelings of attachment to the country, to our towns and anger at the company that used to own a factory in town, but shut it down because they wanted to move it to Mexico where they could have cheaper labor and make more money. And so people lost their jobs. The town is devastated because of it and so forth. Trump sensed that people were not talking about that stuff. And there was a huge audience of potential enthusiastic voters who were not, people were not, politicians were not speaking to them. And he did. And they said, whoa, finally, someone hears us. And I think that's a real thing. I mean, it's one of the reasons, I mean, things are complicated in the UK uh, because of how <laughs> how the, the conservatives have performed. But you've seen this in recent elections there. You've seen it in, in a lot of the elections, the, the somewhat recent Italian election, where you look at who's voting for which party. And what you end up with is a kind of middle class, lower middle class, working class group that finds very appealing a kind of anti-liberal, populist, right-leaning message that does emphasize these issues of kind of, you know, shutting down immigration, being suspicious of, of uh, trade, making trade agreements for the sake of enhancing us versus them, not having a kind of free flow of labor and people and money and capital all over the globe freely. And, and you know, the, the Paul Ryan wing of the Republican Party, and to this day, even the Republican majority that was that just elected barely in the U.S. House of Representatives still is largely um, kind of in that Paul Ryan camp. If you look at the people who the Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, has put in charge of key committees in the House, they tend to be the more kind of economically libertarian types who, who would like to, you know, cut taxes, cut regulation, and uh, do a pro-business policy outlook, which is not really the Trump position and um, and not the right-wing populist position. So the Republican Party in, in the U.S. is still deeply divided about these issues. I think Trump clearly showed that there was an opening 
for the more populist nationalist stuff that was not getting uh, not getting spoken to and and responding to that. But it's not like it was 90 percent in favor of that and 10 yeah. percent. And so, you know, that fight goes on and the Republican Party sort of limps along trying to win elections in a big way and just, you know, either either barely winning them or actually losing the popular vote, but yet sort of winning through the Electoral College and so forth. But like the prospect of Republicans, say, blowing it wide open and winning like 55 percent or something or 60 percent of a national vote for president, they're nowhere near that because I think because you know, whichever one of those two factions the person running speaks to, it it kind of alienates some other parts of the party who then aren't as excited by that candidate. You're one click away from getting access to all the Hub's best analysis and insights. Visit our website, www.thehub.ca now and sign up for our weekly email news digest. Every Saturday morning, we'll send to your inbox the cutting edge thinking and analysis of our smartest contributors on the week that was. Dive into the big issues and ideas moving the public conversation, courtesy of The Hub. Again, you can grab that exclusive email newsletter right now, free of charge at www.thehub.ca. Now back to our program. That brings us to your Substack newsletter, Eyes on the Right, which I'd strongly encourage listeners to check out. What was the key insight behind its launch in 2022? Why did you think there was a need for a newsletter dedicated to developments on the American right? And why were you the right person to document and analyze these intellectual and political trends? Well, I like to think that because of that rather unusual biography that we went over at the top of the segment, I mean, I I I come from a different sort of point of view because I used to be on the right and because my dissent from it was sort of partial. I feel like I still speak the language of conservatives and my own disposition is still sort of conservative. You know, I really don't like instability. Uh, You know, like, for instance, on crime, like I, you know, I got my start after graduate school working for Giuliani. Giuliani himself has gone kind of nuts. But (laughs) but like, you know, I largely supported his policies in the 90s. And I still would if I could go back in time. I think he helped the city a lot when crime, violent crime was very high there. Um, and so there are all kinds of issues I could go through where I, you know, I'm still sort of center right, but I'm a dissenter from what the Republican Party already was becoming even under Bush, but then under Trump, I definitely dissent from it. But again, in this complicated way where, well, some of that populism sounds pretty good, but this particular person saying it is dangerous, so we have to oppose it. But yet, maybe the Republican Party could be reformed to like do it more responsibly. And You know, uh, so I think that I bring certain kind of a unique perspective where I'm critical, but yet sympathetic in ways that are somewhat unusual. But then why why do it at all? Well, because it is a big deal that 
in this last decade, we have lived through the crack up in some ways of the old, you could say, like the old centrist consensus where the debate was largely now this, of course, in Europe is more complicated because in Europe, uh, you know, you had an active left wing opposition throughout much of the post-war period. You had active communist parties vying for power and and so forth. So uh, the, the spectrum was a little broader in electoral democracies in Europe after World War II. But in general, especially since the end of the Cold War, you, you kind of coalesced around a debate between center-right and center-left. Both were versions of an American terms liberalism. So, you know, a little more pro-business on the right side, a little more economically libertarian on that side. And then on the on the center-left side, you want to spend a little more, have some more social programs, taxes a little higher. But debates were kind of those fine-tuning of policy knobs. But bigger questions about... Um, you know, what's going on, whether the whole trajectory might be wrong and we need to make a harder turn in one direction or another didn't really happen very much. And so, but now over the last decade, we, we have seen a kind of shift where now, and especially now that you've seen some right-wing populist parties gain power and then lose them, and now they're the opposition, I think what we can now start to conclude is that the right opposition to liberalism is now no longer a form of right-leaning liberalism. It's now something kind of a step or two further right. It it more fundamentally challenges the, the liberal order of the center. And I think that this is important. It's ominous in some ways because you go another couple of steps further right and you start to get into overtly authoritarian governments. And of course, fascism lies over there and further in that direction. And so it is disturbing to in some of its manifestations, some of the Popular passions within these right-wing movements are pretty ugly, as they have always been. Um, but I find that a lot of the criticism of, of these movements from the center-left tend to be shrill and sort of always in favor of pure denunciation without trying to understand it's everyone is everyone seems to believe and uh, that's too extreme to say everyone but a lot of people in that region ideologically the center left sort of respond by as if they think that if they label these people immoral or racist or bigots that somehow they've their work is done like you know like a lot of times you see criticism in our country of the uh, among among people in that who think that way of say the New York Times so like if the New York Times runs an article in which they send a reporter to a midwestern state in the middle of the US and they interview some people to try to find out why did you vote for Trump and they run that story to kind of give them a voice and listen to what they have to say a whole bunch of people will respond to that by saying, how could you give these bigots a megaphone? In other words, we should tell them to shut up. And and like if we do talk about them at all, always include like caveats and clauses like as Joe Smith said, expressing his racist convictions like you have to add that last bit at the end so that people while reading the article, you know, 
as if the the danger is that people reading the article will be seduced to believe that that person in the Ohio diner is is uh, is somehow correct. And then we will have converted people to Trumpism when I think it makes much more sense to to, you know, try to calm down a little bit and, you know, keep keep our judgments tough when they need to be, but also try to understand and listen to what people are saying and grasp why why it is that people are voting for this now when they didn't used to. So that's kind of the case and what I try to accomplish in the Substack is to just, you know, when I, it's called eyes on the right, it's not, you know, hit the right on the head with a sledgehammer. It's look at them. And I could also say, you know, listen, put your ears to the right, listen to what they're saying. And again, not be uncritical about it, but when 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 critics when critical come from a place where you're actually criticizing what they say, kind of taking their premises seriously. So yeah, that's that's where I'm coming from. Before we wrap up, we'll come to politics, including the 2024 presidential race. But I want to stay on the state of conservative ideas. One of my favorites of your recent Substack posts is on a obscure intellectual radical named Curtis Yarvin, who has come to attract a following for his heterodox views about the limits of American democracy and the politics of being, quote, red-pilled. Help us understand the significance of the red-pill metaphor and Yarvin's place in the broader trends that you've come to document on the American right. Yeah. Well, you know, if, if I, as according to what I was just saying, if like Trump and people like Trump are kind of a couple of clicks further right than center right liberalism, Yarvin is like, you know, a, like a football field further out <laughs> or soccer field. <laughs> I mean, really, um, he, he, his descent and he started writing this in, in the late, uh, 2000s in a, in a blog that was written under a pseudonym named uh, Mencius Moldbug. And the reason he wrote under a pseudonym is very obvious if you go back and read those posts, because he, he explicitly thinks democracy is, is a, a bad form of government and really thinks that the United States needs to have what he calls, I think, somewhat euphemistically a monarchy. What, what he really wants is an absolute monarchy or a form of tyranny. He thinks that we'd be better off if we just had a president who could kind of do whatever he wanted, appoint, fire anybody wanted, any level of government, the kind of slow, creaking, bureaucratic edifice of the federal government that, you know, is inevitable in a country of 330 million people. I think that you're going to have a lot of a lot of people who work in that and kind of do things according to rigorous rules and norms and the rule of law and so forth. He just, you know, basically clear that all out and just put this person in charge. And that person would just kind of declare it as my prerogative that we do this and do that and get rid of this department of state. And I'll put all my people in charge and we'll just do whatever I say. There'll be no question uh, about the legitimacy of pretty much anything. So I think that's pretty crazy uh, and and irresponsible to advocate for that. But the thing that I wrote about in my recent piece, which is longer than most of my, uh, my essays, it's a, a kind of deeper dive, is he combined that kind of political philosophy with an account of our current world that claims 
He basically claims that the reason why we need that is because, in effect, we already live in a kind of tyranny ruled by the left. And the left, it's not that the left is always in charge through electoral politics, because clearly that isn't true. We just had the Trump administration a few years ago for four years. And in the first two years, he had control of both houses of Congress, plus a majority on the Supreme Court. So that looks like unified Republican rule. But no, Yarvin insists that actually what's really in charge is what he calls the cathedral which is all of the country's media and academic institutions. So basically all the universities, the the kind of bureaucratic institutions of the federal government, and then also like the New York Times, the Washington Post, the National Public Radio, all the people who kind of rule these very powerful institutions that disseminate information, and he claims they decide what's true or false, what's acceptable, what's unacceptable to say, and they set the terms of debate, and that's a kind of meta, like a meta control that is deeper than the political control of the federal government. And if they don't want something to happen or be talked about, it doesn't happen. So they're in charge. And so what he, if you, uh, if you know the the uh, 1999 American movie, The Matrix, where the guy Neo is you know, finds out that his entire world, which looked very much like America in 1999, totally normal. Uh, you go to your job, have a relationship, you know, go on vacation, pay your taxes, all your normal stuff in your daily life. Actually, none of that is real. It's a computer simulation controlled by a bunch of intelligent computers who have us all living in a dream. We're all kind of connected through a dream, wired, and we don't know that we're really dreaming. And, and Neo, this character, is given the opportunity to swallow the red pill. And if he swallows the red pill, he wakes up and will see the truth. And in the movie, he does swallow the red pill and he wakes up and discovers in truth he is in a kind of pool of gelatinous liquid, wired up, dreaming his life, which is the life that, you know, is very much like the lives we lead, lead now. And so Yarvin claims reading his own work is taking the red pill. He wakes you up to see that we're enslaved to the cathedral that runs the world. And because it's so insidious, the only way to get rid of it is to put in and power a dictator who will basically fire, you know, get rid of the New York Times, get rid of Harvard University, fire everyone who works in the federal government, who listens to the scientists who work in the universities and so forth. This is this is a really extreme and dangerous way of looking. And you hear people on the American right talking this way all the time these days, they talk readily about, oh, I've been red-pilled, now I see, I see actually how progressive liberals run everything uh, and rule the world. And what that ends up doing, I think, is you always have to ask, what are you giving yourself permission to do? <laughs> mm. And if you convince people that actually just winning the next election is like, that won't change anything. 
we actually not only have to win the election, we we maybe we don't even have to win. We just have to seize power and topple the whole system and create a new system that we run and construct from the ground up in which the other side will never even have an opportunity to wield power again. So again, it's a kind of ideology that is designed to set up the establishment of a tyrannical government. And it's crazy, but these tropes of kind of, I just got woken up, you know, it's all just an illusion. I was red pill. I've been red pilled is, is spreading on the American right. And it's distressing. I'm a conservative and have grown up in the world of conservative ideas, including the case for limited government in the economic and social spheres. A basic premise of a lot of modern conservatism is to essentially privatize economic decision-making as well as one's moral life. I wonder sometimes, I, I admit that I even have these feelings on occasion, if one of the reasons we've seen some of these heterodox and even radical ideas on the right is that the prevailing version of conservatism in the past several decades is boring. In a 2022 article about Francis Fukuyama's end of history thesis, you wrote about the restart of history, quote, initiated by those bored by the peace, prosperity, and equal rights offered by liberal democracy, unquote. Let me put it to you. How much of the current intellectual and political turmoil on the right should be understood as an expression of boredom with the conservatism of, say, National Review magazine and Ronald Reagan? Well, yeah, I do think there's definitely something to that, although I want to put a little more flesh on the bones of boring as as the way of understanding it, even though you quoted me saying that. But if if your, if your listeners go back and read that piece on Fukuyama, what I'm talking about in that piece is his initial arguments in the End of History book. It's titled The End of History and the Last Man. And the argument distilled down quickly is that the motor of human progress and development down through the centuries and millennia is the desire for recognition. And the desire for recognition on the part of individuals has two dimensions. You either want to be recognized as being the equals of others. So I want you, I want you to recognize that I have the same rights that you do. And then we say, okay, I believe I have the rights you do. Do you believe I have you? You, I'll, you tell me you, you recognize my equal rights and then I'll tell you I'll recognize your equal rights. And that's how we get liberal democracy. But there's another dimension to the desire for recognition, which is the desire to be recognized as superior, to be better, to have greater honor, greater dignity, greater nobility than other people. And the promise of liberal democratic capitalism is that people, and not everyone is driven by that craving to be recognized as better, but for those of us, and there are always some of them around who do feel that way, the hope is that, you know, instead of taking over the government and becoming a dictator and making everyone bow down before you, that instead you'll become like Elon Musk or, or or Bill Gates or like someone who's in charge of a huge 
enterprise and bec- you'll become rich and you'll be recognized as being brilliant. You know, you'll be uh, you'll be the next Steve Jobs or something like this. And that will satisfy your desire for, you know, standing out and being better that you become one of the richest people in the world and you can buy anything you want and you can, you know, create new, new, new enterprises that employ thousands of people and you're known around the world, all these things. The question, though, is whether even that is enough. Are there people who long for a kind of exaltation of greatness that you can only get, say, by conquering the world, like Alexander the Great or Napoleon, or or just being that tyrant to whom everyone bows down or even for a more in a more ordinary kind of way like is it enough to get up and go work and have a nice house and have kids and put them to co- through college and so forth like these more quotidian kinds of achievements is that enough to keep again not everybody but some people who who have a kind of itch for greatness beyond that, a kind of lust for glory. What happens to those people if they aren't satisfied with it? And it could be that our societies became so, so kind of liberal democratic, especially in the wake of the Cold War. So no longer, we're not even still involved in this great world historical clash with communism. Now that's been settled. All there is, is Get a job, get a house, put your kids through college, do this, do that, and then you die. Like, there might be some enough people around who find that intolerably mediocre, what Nietzsche called the last man, which is, again, the latter part of Fukuyama's title, the end of history and the last man, this notion that there that that will become sort of subhuman in our mediocrity by not striving to achieve anything great and again it's not that everyone will feel that way but are there enough people who will be troublemakers <laughs> if they're not satisfied in that lust for glory that they'll actually act to tear down the world burn it down just for the sake of the mess that it'll make and the opportunities that will provide them to shine in the chaos. You know, I don't know if uh, your listeners are, if you know the, uh, you know, the Christopher Nolan three Batman movies and the the one with the Joker, I forget which, what the exact title is because they all sound the same to me, but the, the middle movie where he lights a huge mountain of cash on fire with gasoline and then, I think Alfred the butler comments that some people just want to watch the world burn. Well, there are some people who would like that. And I get the feeling someone like Yarvin might be one of them. But, uh, you know, he doesn't want to burn it himself. He wants to be giving advice to the person who will burn it down. In my penultimate question, I want to ask about a point that we've already discussed, which is that you've written positively in the past about a conservatism that was less dogmatically libertarian on economics, and even a bit to the right on on culture broadly defined. It's fair to say, as, as you said earlier, Damon, that to the extent to which Trump occupied this political space, it was mostly a, a function of raw intuition or self-interest or whatever. There are, however, credible voices, including, say, Warren Cass at American Compass, trying to bring intellectual expression to such a vision of American conservatism. Does that resonate with you at all? 
And what do you think its prospects are in, in terms of taking over the kind of center of gravity of, of Republican politics and, and American conservatism more generally? Well, as an intellectual pursuit, I think it has value. I think Orrin Cass's uh, project is uh, is interesting and worth watching. Uh, some things published also at um, oh, they're all there. All the journals sound the same. There, there are a number of new journals that have been founded uh, since Trump came on the scene to explore kind of the policy quadrant opened up by this new kind of more populist conservatism. And I'm I'm all for that. I read those magazines or at least look at them and read selectively in them when I think something is interesting. The problem is that I don't see so far this gaining much traction on the right. I I as I said earlier that I um you know the Republicans just took a narrow majority in the House of Representatives and I don't see any evidence that that stuff is really gaining ground in the party. It seems to still be, I mean, and part of the problem is that the people in the party who who control the purse strings, I mentioned in passing a few minutes ago about the donors, like the, the really rich people on the right who donate to political campaigns still care mostly about having their taxes cut and regulations cut for their own businesses and so forth. And as long as the money is coming in that way, you're not going to get a huge groundswell unless the unless the Republican electorate was really, really committed unambiguously to the other side. But as I also said earlier, that's not even clear. It's sort of some... I don't know if it's 50-50 exactly, but like there is a, a hunger for that among some Republicans, but there's still plenty of Republicans who are just like, get the government out of my life, get it off my back, cut my taxes, leave me alone. I don't want anything to do with you. You know, the old American, you know, don't tread on me mentality is still very powerful. And the Republican Party is a big focal point for that, those feelings. And so as long as that's the case, I don't really know what the prospect for that is electorally. And it's frustrating because I do think there is a potential for that to be something healthy and good. But, you know, we live in a country with only two parties. And so they divvy up the options and the way they're divvied up now it hasn't yet worked to accomplish a true realignment where the Republican Party outrightly flips to something different. It's sort of stillborn so far. It just hasn't really happened yet. And I think that's unfortunate and I'll keep watching and hoping, but uh, I, I'm not seeing it at the moment. I said earlier that I my last question had to be about politics. I'd be remiss if I didn't raise it. Polling tells us that Trump's position as the undisputed leader of the Republican Party is no longer quite so undisputed. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis seems to be his biggest threat yet. Let me ask a two-part question. First, in your view, does DeSantis represent a continuation of Trumpist politics or a return to normalcy or, or something altogether different? And second, do you view him as a, a credible threat to Trump in 2024? Well, I'll start with that last thing. Yes, he is a credible threat to Trump. You know, we'll see the voting doesn't start for another year and a lot can happen in that time. But, 
He is polling decently, and uh, I've been impressed as a kind of tactical issue, like how he's handling the early stages of this. And I'm impressed that he's very disciplined. He doesn't take Trump's bait. He sort of is like, you know, you can attack me if you want. I'm going after Biden. I'm not taking your bait. Um and and I think that that is the best thing for him to do now. Now, eventually, he's going to end up on a debate stage facing Trump, and he won't be able to do that. But for now, I've been I've been impressed at at uh, the discipline and focus of the guy uh, and his advisors. Ideologically, he clearly on the culture war side, the cultural side of populism, he is very much not only a continuation of Trump, but I think a, a, a much more effective, cogent exponent of Trumpism. He actually, he doesn't just, you know, talk about it in tweets and in rallies. He actually is accomplishing things culturally on the ground in Florida. Now, I'm sympathetic to some of his aims there. I'm very anti-woke, as they say, but I'm also... I'm skittish about how mean he is about it. He sort of he's likes to throw red meat to the angriest Republican voters, which, again, tactically, as of a strategist, uh, from a strategy point of view, might be smart. But uh, it's 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 dangerous because these are really these are potentially very nasty impulses that can bleed over into outright government discrimination of minorities and so forth in a way that worries me. So, you know, unless I, I would not be tempted by voting for this guy, unless his the whole way of framing that message changes rather dramatically in a much more kind of broad way, like I'm in favor of you know something that appeals to a lot more Americans than just this faction of Republicans. But then the other side of it is that we really don't know much about what DeSantis thinks about economic policy, but his record when he was in Congress in the House indicates that he have, he's even further in the libertarian direction than Paul Ryan was. He actually voted in favor of a more draconian cut to entitlements and taxes than Ryan supported. And so the real question that's going to come up as we get closer to votes actually being cast is, well, wait a minute, what do you have? Do you repudiate that? Are you now more in the economic populist quadrant or or is all the culture war smoke and mirrors just kind of kind of conceal that when you get in the real thing you want to do is cut taxes, cut Social Security, cut Medicare and so forth. So is this really just more of the same Republican thing, which we've seen over and over down through the decades of like, yeah, we talk a good game on on the culture conservative stuff. But the thing we really care about is is letting rich people keep more of their money. If that's what DeSantis ends up standing for, then I think it'll be another example of what I mean about being stillborn, where like he's sort of half a true populist and half not. But it is early and we we don't really know. I mean, similarly on foreign policy, we have no idea where he stands because he's the governor of a state. There's no real foreign policy there. And so we have a lot to learn about the guy, but thankfully a lot of time. 
<laughs> well, for those who want to understand not just the guy, but the deeper intellectual and political currents that are shaping politics on the American right, I'd recommend you check out Damon Linker's a must-read Substack newsletter, Eyes on the Right. Damon, thank you so much for joining us at Hub Dialogues. Thanks for having me. Good conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Hub Dialogues, brought to you by The Hub, Canada's leading source for analysis and insights on public policy. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please share your favorite Hub podcast with friends and family, subscribe wherever you get your audio online, and leave us a rating and review. We greatly appreciate your feedback and comments. I'm the Hub's Executive Director, Rudyard Griffiths, the host of today's program with Sean Spear, the Hub's Editor-at-Large. This episode was produced by Amal Atar Guzman. The Hub's audio producers are Alex Glutch and David Matta. The Hub podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gornowski-Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. <laughs>